Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Gabe, how's everyone? Well, how are you? Uh, yep, microphone is the right one. How is that, by the way? How's my? Uh, coming through clear um luca luca's a, a newbie here to new york he just moved to new york what whereabouts luca i'm in i'm in greenwich village no beautiful where'd you move from um italy via San, or actually san francisco via italy meaning uh-huh. like i was living in san francisco but i spent a few weeks very uh, nice. Yeah, a few months in Italy before. Those, um, those are some of my favorite places. I haven't, of all the places I've made it to, made it to Italy yet. It was on my list before the plague. Yeah. And uh, San Francisco is like a second home to me. In New York, I lived there for 25 years before I moved down here. So enjoy. Yeah, right, right. yeah no, it's, it's, it seems like a good place. Uh, I need to figure out what to do during the weekend that is not restaurants. But aside from that, I'll, 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 I mean, San Francisco is cool for like hikes, you know? Yeah, well, it depends on what you like to do. So, growing up as a kid, I mean, well, a little bit more than a kid. I was, I was a preteen, teen growing up in the city, and Greenwich used to be one of my favorite parts of town to hang out in. It's not like it used to be, though. There used to be a lot of amazing punk bars and 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 pool billiards places and stuff. But there's still some still some fun nightlife down in that area that I think. Well, you know what? I have no idea, considering the plague. I don't know if you can do any damn thing anymore in that part of town. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, like the nightlife, I think, is great. Um, you know, um, but but there's not much nightlife these days. So. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, it's a pleasure to virtually meet you. Likewise. My pleasure. Thanks for arranging this. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Yes. We're excited to have you on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I am your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, my co-host, uh, friend, confidant, person of, I don't know, interesting <laughs> things in security, Mr. Gabe Gums. Gabe, how you doing, man? I am all right. I am all right. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, good. It's an off day for us. It's Thursday. We usually record on Fridays or sometimes hump day, but uh, always up for the unknown yes a day that ends in y like all the other days <laughs> <laughs> it's uh pandemic time it's hard to tell what day it is blurs day i believe it is referred to now blurs day i like it blurs well we do have an exciting guest with us today uh, i'm really excited to learn about him and his story so uh just wanted to introduce you luca cosentino is the product lead at oasis labs luca thanks for joining the, the show Sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to have you and excited to, to hear your story. So um, if you want to just kind of start things off, we always love to start the show with where you came from and how you ended up at, at Oasis Labs. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I'm Italian and I started my career. I started and then started my career there. Started a company when I was um, in college in, in the field of, uh, like, I'd say, selling, selling offline um, ads to large enterprises who wanted to connect with uh, millennials. And after that, I moved to uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, which is where I had my first um, experience in a large company. And after that, I relocated in London, uh, where I got a job at American Express, uh, Google then, and then I made the jump to, to the West Coast in the US, where I started my MBA at UC Berkeley. And uh, while I was at UC Berkeley, I started thinking of an idea around um, helping companies uh, secure the data and apply additional level of privacy. Um, and, and via the process of researching who could help me in, in, that, uh, in building the product, I ended up meeting Professor Dunsong, who coincidentally was working on something extremely similar. Um, she approached this problem from a very technical um, um, angle while I was more focused on 
the uh, product side and, and, and the like go-to-market side of things. And so we thought that joining forces made sense. So I ended up joining her company uh, right at the beginning. We raised $45 million very early on from Andreessen Horowitz, Excel Foundation Capital, and, and other great investors. And yeah, two and a half years later, I'm still with the company uh, and we are um, growing the company. Right now, we are uh, over 35 employees. Um, we were based in San Francisco and in Europe. Now we are turning into even more remote than before. And it's been great Jordan so far. That's awesome. That's an interesting, rich, diverse background. Luca, one of the reasons why I was really excited to have you on the show, uh, for those that have listened to uh, us over the, the, the these last two seasons, we try to keep it diverse. We try to come at privacy and security from different perspectives. And, and so instead of just having privacy professionals on, big air quotes, because I think privacy professionals are all of us. It's all of our responsibilities for protecting data. You know, we've had people on the show that are CISOs, that are privacy officers, that are lawyers. You're the first person we've had on that is more in the product arena, well, other than myself. Obviously, somewhat obviously. And so, well, you know what? That's not completely true. Nishant was on the show as well, right? And, and Nishant, uh, well, hell, he's, he's an amazing, amazing privacy product expert. But I mean, coming from it from, a, from a, a product leading perspective. And so what I'd like to do first, if you can, is, is dig in a little bit about what Oasis Labs does. Because I, I found it fascinating when, uh, when, when we cross paths. So at Oasis, we try to... Um make one concept very real, which is the idea of giving the data back to the users. This is our um, high-level mission, uh, and we try to incorporate this perspective basically in everything that we do. In order to, to do that, we also know that we need to be very practical and we need to try to give, like, inter we, we need to understand what are the <clears throat> um, forces that dominate this broad market of the data, and also what are the incentives to do it. So we approach the problem from two different angles. Um, the first one is the uh, blockchain angle, which is very helpful in this case to um, create an underlying environment where there is no owner or like no central owner of, of whatever information you put there. And then we also try to approach this from the enterprise angle, which is um, for enterprises who don't necessarily want to deal with blockchain or even when they do they don't really want to deal with the technical aspects of blockchain. We try to build a product that um, helps them help. Oops, I think there's going to be cut. Um, uh, yeah, from the enterprise angle, we we try to help these these companies uh, deal with blockchain uh, without having to necessarily being exposed to the technical aspects of blockchain. And so we build a product that allows them to. Um, um, get all the, the benefits and the properties without having to learn all the coding languages and all the infrastructure pieces. So let's talk a little bit more concrete terms. Uh, you said the mission of the organization is to give data back to their owners. Yes? Yes. So so I am Gabe Gums. Are we talking about my data as a consumer or my data as, as, a, as a patient in a hospital or all of the above? All of the above. So what this means is um, is the following. So we we are creating the infrastructure for enabling these use cases that can be as broad as you want it to be. Uh, we can intersect uh, potentially every flow of data from point A to point B, whether point A could be a user or an enterprise and point B could be, again, a user or an enterprise. We can uh, apply a product in between this flow of the data and we can create this environment where the data, instead of going from database A or from action, action A to database um, B, goes into a capsule that lives on the blockchain and it's uh, owned by the owner. And the owner could be the company or could be, could be the user, uh, depending on which use case we're discussing. In the consumer world, both use cases that you mentioned are very applicable for us, and I'm happy to go into more details about real use cases that are um, live in the market right now. Um, but yes, the high-level vision is, is this one. You take the data from the place they generally live, you put it into an environment that is owned by uh, the user, and you allow the user to specify what the user wants to do with this data. 
Uh, and even when the user decides to do something with the data in the sense that it would allow it like a company to maybe like compute on this data or a third party to access that data, there is the ability to keep that data uh, private, even if um, it's usable. So at its core, Oasis Labs is building this technology that enables this new um, situation where the data can be used without having to reveal the actual data either to the company or to the computation right. model. So this th this is in a section of privacy and technology is what this show is all about. And I've got so many more questions, but but I'm going to have, I'll start with one more follow-up and then I'll turn it back over to Cam, stop dominating the show. Um, does this does this change who the data processor, controller, or owner is? Well, I'm trying to figure out what are the implications for uh, for laws like GDPR, CCPA. Well, do I have to do something less now because I'd be employing this type of a solution, or or is it that I'm I'm going to be able to do something easier? This is the exact core part of what we try to do at Oasis, and this is a fundamental problem that we try to solve on a daily basis, right? Um, so once the technology is in is in is in place, is in place, so people can use it. The question is, who's going to use it, right? And um, I can spend hours discussing what is fair, but I think it's much more relevant if we discuss how this will happen. Um, and um, regulation is definitely one big um, force that will drive adoption here. And in fact, we're seeing companies approaching us with the need of um, uh, using the data without having to own the data, which perfectly matches what we do. And so the point of this use case is really, we don't really care about owning the data as long as we can use the data to like fill the blank, right? Do whatever they need to do. Um, the second big category of, of use case with has less to do with regulation and more to do with a new um, paradox or a new paradigm change is this idea that companies are using privacy uh, as a value proposition for their final users. And so they are saying, uh, you know, like you've been using this product that was giving you a certain service, but what this product was really doing was uh, essentially capturing all, the, all your data and using your data uh, as a way for um, additional business opportunities. So, you know, like if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, right? You heard that expression before. That's exactly that expression. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so we... Um, this is a very interesting category. You're seeing maybe like companies such as that, even Apple, like promoting this story a lot and making privacy a key differentiating factor in the value proposition they create with the user. Luca, now, yeah. I got to tell you, you're, you're breaking my brain a little bit because things, saying things like use the data without owning the data is, uh, I think, pretty pretty groundbreaking. It, it, I mean, that statement in and of itself is, has kind of got me leaning in and sitting up. And so what, what, what do you see as the implications for this, for, for this moving into the future? How, how do we shift more of the world into thinking about using the data without owning data? And then, and then what happens when I no longer want you to use the data? If you don't own it or have it, who does own it and have it? I do. Do I, re do I revoke access? That's exactly right. So it's a um, three-step process. The step number one is when the user onboards to a certain service or product, the user uh, will create an account in a place that, allow, that tells the consuming app uh, that they want to keep the data with them. There is a second step, which is when the company um, starts putting all the user's data into this place that belongs to the user. And then there is the third place, this, the third moment, which is when the user grants consent to the company to actually use that data for certain purposes. So I think this uh, is opening up a new piece of this discussion that we're having here, which is why the user should care, point one, why the company should care, point two, and what are the new use cases that will come up uh, as a result of this new uh, architecture. Right. So why the user should care, and this is like a big question. I can walk you through some of the incentives. Um, and, and so the point is, who are the companies um, that have an interest in doing this and, and have the patience of explaining the users that 
uh, they will own their data and they can do something with their data. And I can walk you for an example that uh, we're very proud of. Uh, you know, this uh, DNA testing, right? That has been a fun exercise for a ton of people who uh, bought the kit, took the DNA test, <clears throat> um, and uh, and got the results, and they, they, they wanted to know, like, some, some data points uh, that they found very fun. Now, the thing is, um, they don't really know how this data is going to be used 20 years from now, and the implications of having this data public on the market seems to be really bigger than what the consumer has realized today, right? <clears throat> Imagine a situation where um, you are competing for a role in a company and they tell you that given that your um, likelihood to, 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 to uh, develop a certain disease, you're not going to get that job or you're going to get a higher insurance rate um, because of, of that, right? The implications are, are um, as big as you want it to be. Imagine this different scenario, uh, which is the scenario proposed by this company we work with called Nebula Genomics, which is a privacy-preserving version of 23andMe. And they go to market with a different value proposition. They tell their users, we are private by default. Take our DNA test, you pay a price, same thing you do with other companies, but um, the output of your test is never gonna be revealed to anyone. Stays private, stays with you. Um, we do, uh, we being Nebula, we do the like heavy lifting for you. So we do the uh, hosting, the storage, and, and on all these pieces. So you don't have to create anything different than you would do otherwise, uh, but you have full control over your data. And you have a page where you can grant or revoke permission to what we, Nebula, can do with you. And that's an example of this company called Nebula. They use our infrastructure to, to power this. What is the key element and what is the key part? One, you attract the user base that is interesting, interested in privacy. And you make, you make them the first promoter of the idea of privacy and, and you ask them to go in the market and attract other people like them. Second, you create an incentive because when because you build a database of very unique pieces of data that is very, very interesting for a ton of people, such as like pharma companies. When pharma companies want to go and, and, and um, access the DNA of, I don't know, like a million users, they will reach out to this company Nebula and they will say, this is the money we want to pay for this data. Now, Nebula can go to the consumer and say, do you want to accept this money for this computation? The consumer will say yes or no. I tend to believe that they're going to say yes. And here's the, here's the key part of all I'm saying, that even when consent is granted, even when the company can actually use that data to like train models or whatever they need to do, the data actually stays private. So the data is not transferred. So there is no way you can go and offer money to the user to transfer um, the data so that then you can resell it or you can use it indefinitely and, and so on and so forth. And this is all done in a programmatic way without having to do contractual agreement all the time. Um, but you can see this as a, um, um, as, a, as a protocol that governs how the relationship between users and companies um, move forward. I want to pause it here and see if there are questions. And if not, I want to also give you one more piece of why this is a re revolutionary um, um, aspect of the relationship between companies and users. So on the show, we've talked a, a few times about being able to put the data back into the data owner's hands, very much the way you, you're, you're talking about now, and even allowing them to be able to monetize their own data. And it sounds like that is very much what's happening here. And so, you know, kind of naturally, my next thought then goes towards how do we make sure that there aren't inequities in the way that data is monetized? That is to say, the people receiving, you know, some monetary compensation for their for their data. How do we even, first of all, determine what's the value of my data versus Cam's data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is another crucial part that uh, it's in our daily conversations, and 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 this where this is also another place where. Uh, encapsulating the data and giving the ability to keep the data private, even when data is used, actually helps with. Um, so I want to walk you through um, this situation, right? Um, imagine a situation where, as I said, like the data stays in this capsule and the company comes to you and says, I want to use your data. Now, at that time, you will say, uh, you know what? Um, um, I'm going to charge you like $5 for this data. And the company will do their own model and will say, yes, this is okay for us, or this is not okay for us. Now, imagine that while you give 
your data set for $5, there is someone that comes to you and says $6. Now your new price for the data is $6, no longer $5. Now, if you have transferred your data set to another company, you don't have any, any opinion on how the data is going to be valued because they can buy the data from you, but they can also go to the first company and buy it for not even $5, like buy for whatever price because that company doesn't care about that data anymore once they use the data for whatever they need to do. So I'm trying to converge towards a situation where the transaction is not a one-off transaction, but is a uh, governed by a protocol that automatically determines the price of that data set based on the supply and demand of that specific data. Today, tomorrow, and 20 years from now. And, and then the application that collects the data can essentially do um, can essentially like capture a fee out of that transaction or, or be essentially like the marketplace for that. So the whole point of this exercise is using privacy in a way that has less to do with like cybersecurity, et cetera, and more to do with the ability of not reusing the data indefinitely once the user somehow consents to give access to the data. Um, what's even what's even like more important about everything that I'm saying here is that companies and users tend to have a conflicting relationship as the company grows. At the very beginning of the company, um, the company tends to be very collaborative with their users because the importance of a single user for that company is really, really big. Um, but once the company scales and reaches more and more users, the, re- the uh, marginal importance of um, that nth user is basically like close to zero. Um, and um, and so they feel they're in a position of exploiting the user uh, as much as possible because what, what do you want the user to do? Like leave a service that they use every day? Are you really going to leave Facebook uh, because you cannot control the photos that you upload? Are you really not going to pay with a credit card because uh, they get your data? Like it cannot be a situation where there's a trade-off between your convenience and, and privacy. But if you switch the incentive and if you use privacy as an incentive for convincing the user to do something that the user would not do otherwise, that's an entirely new way of seeing privacy, and that's an entirely new, a new way of creating a relationship between users and companies. All right, Kim, I apologize. I'll keep going, though, until you tell me to stop. So, Luca, why did you, why did you guys endeavor to solve this problem? Why? Why? Um. So we, the, I mean, the, the answer is pretty long. Like we, um, the, the idea itself started in a computer science lab um, at Berkeley where uh, people started to research how to guarantee external privacy or additional privacy for the data uh, in, in this new world where like GDPR, it's uh, one of the first concerns of, of companies when they start, especially in Europe. Um, same thing in California, same thing in Virginia, and, and maybe same thing in the rest of the U.S. like pretty soon. Um, and, and having this new thing called blockchain and having the ability to abstract the blockchain in a way that doesn't even feel like using blockchain um, seemed like a very good um, opportunity to create an entirely new uh, product for companies. But in the process of doing that, uh, what became really clear is that this thing could not only help companies comply with some regulation, but also change the relationship between companies and users. And it felt like such an important thing to do because um, the same way you use oil to run some like businesses or some machines and you use uh, other factors of production uh, in uh, the traditional economy, um, I think we would argue that uh, data actually becomes a factor of production for the technology world with a ton of positive effects. And and when you look at the market, you see a very evident problem, which is consumers don't really care about the data um, and companies die to get more and more data. And this feels like a huge imbalance that needs to be solved somehow, Um, but it needs to be solved in a way that is not just fair to the user, but it's also convenient for companies. Uh, And that's why uh, we we decided to insist in uh, in this direction. Right now, we are also considering expanding this to the broader creators and ownership economy. Because if you think about this uh, that I've been talking about so far, 
you start thinking of a world where it's not only your data that matters, but in general, your possessions, right? Whatever you own. Um, crypto taught the market that your key means your money. Um, now we are uh, evolving the idea of data should mean your data. Um, and the combination of the two can result in very powerful combinations. And that's good information. I feel like I've been away. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, Welcome Luca. to this week's episode of <laughs> Podcast. Hi. <laughs> no, this is so this is so interesting because I don't know if this is in the same area, Luca, but when you were just talking about how companies and the data that you know, your, your actual data that they, that company has on you. Are, are you talking about, and I apologize if I feel like I'm coming out of left field, but are we, are we in the same realm as companies that use data for selfish pur- purposes, for business purposes? Or are you talking about just companies that own data in the financial services or whatever, wherever, what, whatever realm they're in? Is it just data that they own because that person is a customer of them? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, so we started chatting a lot about the the user story, right? Um, in this in this new narrative around like what the new web um, should look like, but uh, when you consider the other side of the spectrum, which is c- c- uh, data that the company has, which could be how they um, uh, I don't know, like even secrets such as how they what, what could be a good example here. Um, how they do business in a certain country, uh, how they produce a color for your T-shirt, right? Like all these things, um, they all they all require data. And you're right, like these companies have data that that uh, is not necessarily linked to users. Now, this is um, a uh, one of the one of the first things that I actually considered when I told you that I was thinking about the use cases was really how um, two companies uh, can. Um, or even before so, sorry, how one company can collaborate on data sets with internal or external stakeholders without risking that the data is actually transferred from uh, their database to someone else's database. And the example I have here, of course, the most obvious one is the um, Facebook Cambridge Analytica like problem mm-hmm. when um, the data was transferred for one purpose and what ended up being used for a completely different purpose because that's what the incentives would have predicted, right? It's very would have been very simple to predict that that scenario sooner um, or later. And and I noticed this personally because when I was working for one of the big companies that I was uh, that I mentioned before, I I realized this weird thing, which was you as an intern uh, go to a company, you request access to tables, um, and and someone based in some other geographies will take your request without knowing anything about you, but an, an, an email and the fact that you work at that company. Uh, and they say yes. Okay, now you now the, now you have access to the to, to the data, and and the implications are are huge because I can make mistakes, I can be malicious, I can sell the database to someone else. Like there's too many things I can do. So everything that I described about the idea of keeping privacy and keeping this data encapsulated really benefits the companies itself, even even without the relationship with the users. Because what you can do as a company is take the data. Uh, apply policies that are not at table level, but at a data point level or a column level. Um, and based on the relationship between this data, you can indeed um, decide whether that data is worth showing or not. So imagine this scenario. Imagine a scenario of a sales team uh, who, what do they need to do? They need to um, see the phone number of the customer they need to talk to, see some data around like um, the sales that they made this, this month, and, and that basically, right? There is no point in giving them a non-enough access um, to a certain table, right? It's, it's, it would be much better to only like, to be able to tell the machine, hey, based on the end use case, separate what data is sensitive from what data is not sensitive. And that's another example where you end up protecting the company uh, from potential problems while not slowing down the company on the daily basis of the need. And when the company needs to, uh, work on the same data set with an external partner. You can think of American Express linking uh, or like passing some data to Amazon for, um, I don't know, better targeting. Um, you can imagine the situation where um, Amazon accesses the data of a certain account member at American Express when the account member links the company to the Amazon account. 
And based on the spend profile of the last five years, Amazon can use these additional data points to train their model and give product recommendations to the user. This doesn't happen today because the data cannot be transferred from American Express to Amazon because it would be a massive uh, shift of power between these two companies. But if you add privacy and the ability to compute on this data and to run machine learning or deep learning models uh, while keeping the data private, that can open up to a win-win-win situation for American Express, for Amazon, and for the user. And this this is one use case, but there's so many. And that's so good. And I feel, I don't know what it is, Luca, but I feel energy from you. And I think that's what Gay was probably just, I have so many questions that I want to ask you. And I know we're on a podcast, so I have a chance. Uh, (laughs) But one thing that comes to mind is I'm just super curious over this past year, this might seem like a cop-out question, but the pandemic happens. We're still going through it as a, as a a country, a nation. What, what is the one thing that has changed for Oasis and your team for the good or the bad that you've had to adapt, you know, with your processes or with customers or prospects, what's one thing that has changed? It could be good or bad. Yeah. Um, we, I'd say we became a more thoughtful um, company than we were before um, because before a lot of decisions were taken by grouping as team. And, you know, like it's, it's pretty proven by now that meetings are, are not effective. Like there's plenty of narratives around the fact that um, meetings in, inside companies uh, tend to be a waste of time because of a number of reasons, right? Um, uh, everyone wants to be involved. The uh, decision-making process tends to average to consensus and not to uh, the, the best scenario, um, or, or maybe like to to, to like um, uh, seeking the, the, the truth in that decision. Um, while we notice that arranging meetings in in the remote setup tends to be a little bit more challenging, um, not because people don't have time, people are actually have more time, but because people um, because you need to be more thoughtful about like who you're going to invite to the meeting. There's not going to be the pressure of being seen in the corridor, walking into a room with like three people and excluding other people. Um, and so um, uh, you cannot read the emotions in the room. You cannot read the temperature in the room. So one thing that became really important for us was uh, moving to a fully asynchronously uh, decision-making process, which is uh, you want to start from like writing down your idea, which requires you to think way more about the idea you're presenting. Uh, requires you to point at the problem in a much more specific way, um, and then like all the solutions, everything you consider, like goes on, goes like written down. Uh, the stakeholders will have to prepare much better before the meeting because their chances to meet you are lower, um, and consequently, you will create a situation where a um, the information is better shared um, across the organization. You as an information proponent. Uh, or a project proponent, you think way more about what you're doing than before. Uh, the people who are people who are shy or maybe more uh, introverts have much higher chances to be heard. And and fourth, um, uh, you can go back in time and look at why you took a certain decision. Um, I I heard the counter argument to this is that companies that have super charismatic management or leaders are suffering a little bit from from this. So maybe that could be a downside. But for us, um, we, we work a lot as a team. So that has been um, a good shift and that has produced a ton of positive um, outcomes that we didn't even expect. Awesome. Good answer. To shift gears a little bit, you, I mean, obviously you can go on your LinkedIn and, and see where you've worked. So not just name dropping here, but Google, PayPal, American Express, you've worked at some big companies, which, and you don't have to be, you can answer this any way you want, of course, but. I'm just curious, which company throughout your career has impacted uh, impacted you the most, and where where did that passion come from for for being where you are right now and, and privacy in, in the product field? So the company that impacted me the most was um, definitely Procter and Gamble uh, because the level of attention they have on the user it's comparable to like I think no other company in the world. They really uh, want to know what the user wants. They really help you understand um, the incentives. They really help you understand what competition means. 
um, and they also help you understand uh, what does it mean to be um, always at the right timing of uh, of certain like um, product or product innovation, especially for very simple categories such as toothbrushes or or stuff that we use every day without even noticing sometimes. Um, Google gave me uh, Google also has this component of focus on the user, but you know, like the user here, we're talking about billions of users all over the world, so it's much harder to like focus uh, when you are inside when you are inside Google. <clears throat> well, maybe a Procter and Gamble, you tend to be like focus on one product in one market in one segment in one channel, so you know, uh, by definition, it's different. But uh, the two things that these companies have in common is accessing this crazy large quantity of data. Um, that they can that they can use to to inform whatever decision they want. They have internal data, external data, and so that has been my my main um, connector across every experience that I've done in the past. And when I started um, when I was at Berkeley and I started reading like the white papers and I started getting more familiar with um, <clears throat> the idea of like uh, blockchain and privacy, because uh, you know like blockchain promotes transparency. So like the main the main um, pushback is yeah, but who wants an entirely transparent system, so you need privacy, right? You start thinking that right. way. I sort of appreciated how privacy matter, mattered, uh, not just in the context of securing the data or avoiding data breaches, but also in the context of enabling uh, pretty new use cases. And it's very fascinating. I don't know if you had the chance to do that, but privacy is this mysterious thing that um, is really connected with cybersecurity, you know, like the ability of hiding information um, which has a kind of a negative connotation somehow. Uh, but when you start thinking of privacy over 3,000 years of history, um, um, the, you start always seeing this cycle of uh, product innovation at, uh, at the cost of privacy, and then privacy as, a, as an, as an add-on to <clears throat> the uh, product innovation. We, we experienced that with um, um, telephones and then headphones to to like stop listening to what other people were saying or like stop or like preventing people from listening to what you were saying or what you were hearing. Um, and now we're witnessing this with like message gaps and, and uh, all these like one-to-one communication channels uh, that are becoming more and more private. And to, I mean, just to take it to a personal level, what, what is when someone says privacy to you personally? What does that mean to you? Have you ever had an experience in the past or recently that uh, that you felt like your privacy was invaded? Or you, I mean, is there something that kind of like sticks out that brings a little bit of passion behind being in the privacy industry? Yeah. So to me, privacy means two things: means um, um, control of what you want, right? Like you decide what, what, what part of your body you want to expose, what part of your body you don't want to expose. That's nothing to do with hiding bad information. It mm-hmm. has to do with like the human being nature. Um, and the second thing is um, inefficiencies. I think the lack of privacy is causing a ton of inefficiencies for the final users. Like the example that um, um, I have in mind on a single daily basis is why do I have to register to every website? Why do I have to go to a bank um, and, and give my information over and over? Um, why do I have to KYC and put my face in front of my camera like daily three times to access every single service or to register to every single service? Um, and, and why at the same time, I don't control anything of my data, of my money, uh, of, my, of my possessions, but there's always someone else that is doing the work for me because they created the need for that. Um, yeah, so this is what privacy um, um, means to me. It's very different from what privacy meant to me when I started working in this field. Um, back then, it, uh, it had more to do with, again, like a company trying to secure the data. Uh, but once I expanded this, this uh, concept beyond where it was, I, um, I, I started loving privacy like 10 times more than what I did before. Um, to me, the wow moment was, uh, this sort of cycle uh, where you start thinking of product people who observe the market uh, or observe consumers and and say, uh, oh, consumers don't care about privacy. And so consequently, they don't design products with the right privacy incentives. Um, and then users who are not given the possibility of caring about that, uh, then also 
um, um, don't really do it because it's always a massive trade-off to go through like 10 settings and then change your privacy for no additional benefit. So I'd love to change that in the future. Man, that's good. I think I think you hit, you hit it on the head with, it's a mixed bag and I think it's getting stronger and Gabe can probably chime in on this, but you know, one of our first episodes, we talk about that with the ice cream ice cream place where they just, they started off with cash and they eventually got a payment system and you can put in your information. And what it does is it helps the ice cream place. It kind of collects data on you and knows when you come in and knows what you get and knows what you like. It can suggest things. I think the thing is, is naturally most people don't really care, but at the same time they do. But I think it's also, they just, they, they, they're unaware or they're, they're vulnerable. And, and Gabe, you're on mute if you're trying to talk, by the way. <laughs> right. yeah. I, I think some of that is the latter though, Cam. It's, I think more people would care a bit more if they, they understood those implications and impacts. One of the reasons why I wanted to look on the show is I think people might care if, if they understood that they can take control back of their data. Mm-hmm. They can, they can be the ones to profit from the data, not just the Facebooks of the world. I think if we empower the people with that information, they will care. Yeah. That's right. I I mean, that's what we try to target. Like our best targets are these companies who are going to market offering more private ways to interact with the users. Um, we don't believe in the narrative that people don't care about the data. We believe in the narrative of people um, like the data is often stolen uh, as a compromise for something else. You mentioned the example of the ice cream shop, right? Um, I don't know, you go to a restaurant in New York, um, they say, how many are you? They say like two. And then from there, what happens? The next step is generally, um, okay, give me your phone number um, and I'm going to text you when the table is ready. Like, what do you want? You want me to walk away because um, you're asking for my phone number? It's 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 a It's a tough experience for me for my group like i should have a strong stand against um against privacy but like like that's not what we do we don't walk around fighting battles right right um, well you don't my family loves <laughs> me every time i go with my family i make sure to fight a privacy battle and they're like gabe can we just eat dinner i'm like no it's the principle of it. oh no he didn't <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so you know like you're absolutely right, though. There is that line between every time some random doctor's office asks you for a social security number, and you know they don't really need it to, like, you know why they need it, but they don't need it. And it's like, come on, you don't need that at the intake portion of this, or I can yeah. give it to you different. Like, but do we fight every single one of these battles? And I think the answer to that is maybe we should choose those fights wisely. And sometimes there's moments when it's worth fighting and other times when it's not, you know, there's times when, you know, if I'm by myself, yeah, maybe it's worth me taking a little bit of a stand to that restaurant so that they, they know that people like me exist and that I care about privacy and that I'm, I'm speaking for, for all of us when I make that stand, even the ones that don't know it. So it's, it's a tough battle though, but I think we have to find those moments every day to, to take some stand on our privacy collectively. Yeah, I think I think like we, I mean, Apple is doing a fantastic job of teaching people the value of the data or the fact that they should care. They are exposing users with exactly what data the certain app uh, is collecting, and even the language that they're using it's some sometimes like beautiful. Like they say, ask the app to stop tracking you. Um, this is this is a huge step forward. Like, think about what policies are. I don't know. Facebook. You need to go and say, make my profile anonymous. Like, it sounds bad. I don't know. Like, there is a difference between pushing one thing as a, as an exciting thing to do, and another one as 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 a sort of like, oh, I don't want you to look at me. Like, I'm, I'm, like it, it's um, almost like it's prescriptive. Yeah, yeah, as well, right? A, a, a good direction for you to just. And and most people will follow it if it's like you said when it's said differently when it's said right. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, but but always uh, like this is this is another an important part, right? Like at Oasis, in the end, we're not fighting battles around what's fair, what's not fair for the user in the sense that oh, you know, you should change the language. But what we're seeing, what we're doing is a completely different thing, which is what are the right incentives for mm-hmm. these people to care. We're not approaching the story from what's fair only. We know that wouldn't work. But we're saying, what is the right? How do you create a better relationship, a healthier relationship 
between you, um, company, you, user, and, and third parties you work with uh, in a way that um, makes everyone um, better or like brings everyone in a better place than they were before. Uh, that to me is the motivating factor uh, for Oasis Labs, and it's what keeps me uh, at the company because um, it, you really can imagine like a, a new story. Being close to crypto, that gives us the power to move forward because when if there is one thing that crypto has taught everyone is that the ownership of your money matters. And so now for crypto users, if you survey them, it feels very weird to go to a bank and have to ask permission to withdraw your money or to do something with your money. It feels very right. In the crypto world, it's all yours. And, and we expect that the same is going to happen with the data. I love this, intersection, love this intersection of crypto and privacy uh, and, and, and crypto and, and using crypto to take back our privacy. Uh, are, there any, are there any similar applications to crypto that can help preserve privacy? I'd say the, um, the entire movement around building the, um, around the idea that you want to build a more decentralized web, uh, it's based on the idea of transparency and privacy at the same time. And under this new lens um, that, I, that I tried to propose today, which is this one that you can keep the data private but still enabling the data, um, in my opinion, that... Uh, blurs the the, the trade-off between transparency or like the, the it sort of removes the lines between privacy and transparency because no one cares. Like the ideal world is where no one will care about privacy if everyone can use the data that is inside without violating the privacy, you know? Um, so um, to me, the entire crypto world, based on this idea that the protocols that we use every day, like HTTPS, SMTP, the one that we use for uh, surfing the web or for sending emails, don't really like share state, don't really pass information to each other because they don't capture information, is the most fundamental premise for a um, shared state web powered by privacy, where actually users keep their own owner ownership and use it as a tradable currency on this web. So people like while they surf the web, they can really uh, compensate the content producer for their efforts, for their, their content that they put out there and so on and so forth. Like if you look at Brave Browser, I, I think you're familiar with that uh, in the privacy context, uh, they are, for a number of reasons, they are um, attracting now over 30 million active users, uh, which is insane if you think about where they were only like what, two, two years ago. So that to me is um, uh, that to me is, is a huge intersection of privacy and uh, a user-controlled web. Before we move on, because I know we're up on time, um, is there anything that you want to bring up that we didn't get to discuss? And is if not, is there anything that you would recommend um, our listeners just uh, as a way to to fix your privacy or something that you would suggest that uh, you maybe implemented or do yourself personally um, over these last year of, you know, working from home? Yeah, I think um, with relationship to privacy, um, I think the uh, the audience can maybe do a couple of interesting things. Um, for the part of the audience that is interested in the enterprise side of privacy, um, we have a few blog posts, uh, we Oasis Labs have a few blog posts and um, a, good, a good documentation about these APIs that we build to allow companies to secure the data uh, and apply policies even in, uh, to either uh, use the data inside the organization or, or share data with like th third parties. And when you look at how this works and when you look at uh, the actual technical design to uh, make this possible, I'd say it's really fascinating because it's an entirely new new concept, and it's also very easy. It can be done with like very few and simple APIs. Um, for the part of the audience that is more interested in um, user-based uh, or user-controlled web, or uh, the data that should stay with the user, and, and all the part that we discussed before, I'd say we have a couple of blog posts, um, maybe one or two under my name, that are talking about this 
uh, automated protocol would actually work. This place where um, the data supplier and the data consumer can work together without having a, relation, a contractual relationship between them. Uh, and I found that concept very fascinating because uh, you remove a lot of the barriers that prevent people and companies to work on the data at the same time um, today. Um, and I think for the people who have a general interest in, in privacy and are curious about privacy at a more philosophical level, uh, there is this uh, blog post that doesn't belong to us, but it's called like the history of privacy or something like that. It, it comes up on, on Medium. And uh, it walks uh, readers through 3,000 seer, 3,000 seer uh, of of uh, privacy um, and in, in the uh, like from from yeah from 3,000 uh, years ago to to today how privacy uh, shaped our lives and how it changed or how it got sacrificed at times uh, and it's very fascinating when we want to like look back to look forward um, on a on a I don't know on a more personal level like shifting a little bit from privacy and and talking about routines in in the COVID setup mm-hmm. uh, I think I. I was very intentional about uh, doing things that I would not necessarily have the, the, the time to do in the future. Uh, and those were um, like learning very specific skill set that are um, uh, sort of like solo uh, activities. So like playing the piano or coding, those are the two things that I've done. So I think after a year uh, or, or less, I think it paid off to focus on a few activities and be very clear about the objectives. It made me a suffered the COVID thing much less than uh, I would have had otherwise. Being much less, let's say, bored with with uh, work, being the only activity in the whole day, and also feel much less alone in the uh, in this like remote setup where you have a ton of connections, but none of them is um, physical, you know. Uh, and so you need you need you need like other activities, other ways to make your brain um, active. Agree. Gaming is always a good one especially if you like to yell at the screen and talk to other people, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fun too. yeah. Awesome, man. That's, that's really insightful. And we'll be sure to share uh, those blog posts if, if, uh, and the show notes uh, that you were referring to. And why don't we go ahead and move on to our last section, which is our deep, dark secrets. So this is where we open up a little bit and get to know you even more. So let's start off with just something simple. What is your biggest pet peeve or annoyance? One easy thing that comes to mind right now is um, the absence of rationality and logic in the workplace. You know, like we are human beings and we are truly moved by feelings and uh, emotions and, and fear, right? Um, and, and I see how in, in, a, in the context of a meeting, um, certain cultures enable these traits to be put forward more or less. Um, at the same time, I'm reading about organizations um, that do an outstanding job at encouraging very thoughtful conversations um, uh, and I and I think it annoys me a lot when when that really does, doesn't happen. Uh, in crypto, it's very frequent. In privacy, it's very frequent um, not to follow very logical arguments and sort of write off very interesting ideas or value propositions by saying high-level stuff like consumers don't care, right? And and you write off an entire project because of this um, general view that don't really serve the purpose, but at the same time capture a broader audience because, you know, groups think groups tend to think uh, in, in average terms and don't care about what the truth is as long as other people agree with you. That's a good point because in, in today's world, it's very common to get into either Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, to where you can get into a very, it's easy for people to not have a, a very good conversation to where it's two different views that disagree, but are also respectful in the fact that I respect what you believe in and you should respect what I believe in. But usually that's not the case uh, online nowadays. It seems to be a very like negative approach for a lot of people 
Um, maybe not so much on LinkedIn, but I would say on Facebook and Instagram. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's, there's also one more sort of step out of that that is not just respecting what people say. You know, like if you present an opinion to me, I will respect it anyway, but doesn't mean that I will put extra um, um, effort in, uh, in understanding what, what, what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but so to me, it's even more, it's even deeper than just like respecting the opinion, which is sort of the base. I agree with you that doesn't happen online, but personally, yeah. I consider that the basis. I think I, I really love conversations where people don't even care about respecting or not respecting your idea, but care about understanding your idea, understanding the core assumptions of your idea, and then either like criticizing their assumptions for the right reasons or maybe helping you advance the idea, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but they help you form an argument. Like you leave that conversation with an almost fully fleshed argument that has very clear assumptions that are reasonable and help you like advance the state of where you are. Yeah, um, they challenge you with some questions. Yeah. They Their questionings are very, like they're interested. Exactly. Which which helped that conversation. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. All right. I got a good one here. I don't, and you might not know this, but maybe. Um, who's the more epic wizard, Gandalf or Dumbledore? That's not for me. I, I no, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. It's basically it's from uh, Lord of the Rings and yeah, yeah, I, Harry I Potter. Watch it. It's all right. I, I wanted to shoot in the dark there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what is your favorite football team? Um, he's Italian, so I know. Sure I know the right question. I should right, say good. football. Football. Right, very good. Right, I'm we, talk- So it's American football. No, no, no. Your football. Oh, which soccer. Would be soccer. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love. I mean, my favorite team is um, Inter Milan. Okay. Uh, for a number of reasons, I'm from Rome, so I should be supportive of other teams. But I like that one because when they came play to Rome, I went to the stadium as a Rome fan, but I didn't like the supporters. They seemed very unfair. I suppose that my view as a seven-year-old must have not been the most rational one. Maybe I was surrounded by, you know, like Roma fans and I simply didn't like the stadium environment. Who knows? But I ended up liking, um, I ended up liking Inter Milan. And, and what's fun is that two years, just two years after I changed my mind and, and became an Inter Milan fan, they bought um, the, the real uh, Ronaldo. And, mm-hmm. and so I had to witness like the best, uh, probably one of the best cycles of that team. Um, so, and so were was, you an, were you an AC Milan fan before you changed over to, to Inter Milan? No, I was a supporter of uh, the local team from Rome. Okay, Roma. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were you a fan of Inter Milan? I can't remember when they made that first statue of Ronaldo. Was that before he went to Milan? <laughs> the first <laughs> statue. <laughs> The yeah. one that was very, very bad. <laughs> no, I think you're talking about the other Ronaldo. I'm talking about the Ronaldo, the Brazilian, you know, like the one that was yeah. there in 1998. The one who broke both his knees. I think the statue is the the Portuguese Ronaldo, the current yes. Ronaldo. Oh, Cristiano. Right, uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm getting those mixed up. Okay. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah, my yeah. Fault. yeah, that's yeah, my fault. Yeah, it would have been, been fun. If you have like five minutes, um, watch the uh, like a prank they made to David Beckham. Okay. Uh, they did a similar thing. So they invited him to a place. And, and yes, they, uh, I saw yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Watch that. His face is, is it's hilarious. I think it was um, I think it was that TV show host. Cor- yeah, Cordon- the, the carpool. Cordon, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember his name. That was funny. Um, yeah, I totally missed. I didn't know that it was another Ronaldo, but um, <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah, I don't watch think- his videos are much better than, than the new one. So to piggyback off of that, um, since moving into the States, what's been your favorite thing about being away from home? And I if that's that, hard, I can go with, you can go with favorite food in, in America. No, not favorite food in America, I'm not going to say. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the, the, uh, the favorite thing of being, hard, being away from, from uh, my country is um, this, um, like learning scale. Right, the scale of things that um, it's it's basically um, in in everything in the U.S. Right, everything has to do with creating something big, having a big impact, having a big conversation, as in like a meaningful conversation, 
mm-hmm. nothing is really left uh, unintended and and nothing is really um um everything is very strategic and 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 plan ahead let's say um and i may um, agree or disagree with applying this logic to 100% of the moments in life but you know uh, there's such a big learning that that you can have coming from places where maybe there is a lot of talking a lot of opportunities but um, when it comes to um, thinking big and thinking cooperatively uh, thinking uh, in, a, in a way that um, requires to bring people on your side work with these people in a very fair and horizontal way uh, and proceed by uh, by real consensus, um, I think those are uh, the things that I could benefit the most um, from. And being here with uh, my partner uh, and, and witnessing this process as a, as a young family um, uh, has doubled down the value of, uh, of that experience because it allowed us to uh, make uh, made the comparison and also uh, decide what trajectory we want for our kids and, and uh, for our future kids. And, and it allowed us to be really exposed to, um, well, maybe like, I don't know, 20 elements of different cultures across like three countries um, and, and gave us the privilege to, no matter where we're going to leave, like decide which elements we want to keep for, from each of these, of this culture and which one we want to stay away from. That's awesome. What's your favorite cereal? Um, I like Cheerios a lot. The one with honey. <laughs> I concur. I am. Yeah. I'm a fan of Cheerios because they're simple. Plus, you can add like real fruit to it, and yeah. you don't have to like. It's just I don't know. It's just classic. And they've been the same for years, so consistency is also very important. It's true. Um, if you could be one, well, if you can have one superpower, what would it be and why? Flying. Um, and, and the why probably self-explanatory, but it would remove, um, a ton of barriers that, um, that we all have to face right now, which could be like proximity with you, with the people you love, um, proximity with the people that, um, will not necessarily be around you for like much longer. And, and, uh, you would be able to sort of remove, um, I, I, and oh, sorry, at the same time, you would be able to learn from many more things um, than, than uh, you could do in this current setup. And I say that it, it's weird, but um, the remote work is probably the closest thing that I've gotten um, 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 this year, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily uh, as good as flying but it gives you the possibility of flying way more. And so to some extent, this is like a step forward. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm so in love with um, the remote setup. I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> I think it's such a huge positive effect that we've all gone through that it just it opens up so many possibilities because you can work for companies that are now, you know, you have more opportunities um, and you have more opportunities to kind of do more things if you really wanted to, because you can work from anywhere as long as you get your stuff done. But that's a great point. Definitely more positive outweighed the situation than negative. But well, Luca, I've taken up too much of your time. We've taken up too much of your time and absolutely enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for what you do. And thanks for taking the time to, to chat with us and uh, we'll be sure to sh- uh We'll be sure to share uh, those blogs and links and anything else that you want us to share in the show notes. Um, Gabe, is there anything you want to say? No, I just would same. Appreciate you coming on the show, Luca. This was super interesting. I hope our guests found it informative. Uh, this world where consumers get to take back their privacy is, is a world I want to live in. So I appreciate what you guys are doing out there to make that a reality. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for these fun and thoughtful questions. Um, I um, I also want to like shout out a special thanks for uh, having deviated a little bit from your standard like uh, podcast and and covering this application of privacy that is broader to the consumer side, uh, which I think is very interesting. But thanks a lot for giving me the chance to uh, voice that. Well, thanks for coming on and doing so. Cam, take us out. All right. 
Well, Luca, thanks so much again, and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you. I appreciate it. Cowbells right here. This section for Jeff, you got to put cowbells right here. Cowbells. I'll see you later, bro. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbells. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week. And to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I know that there are millions of other shows and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>